0: on our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Hebrews together. We come to Hebrews chapter 6. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home. Make it yours as a gift from the Lord, And God wants everyone to have a Bible. We want everyone to have a Bible. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Oh, let's start in verse 12. He's speaking and he says to these Jewish believers, that you you do not become sluggish, but rather imitate those who through faith and patience... Inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for Confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. And thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability or the unchangeableness of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable, unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order Of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for every jot, every tittle, every thought, every precept, every verse, every paragraph, every book. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is a living word, that you want to give a living place in each one of our lives. And we know, Lord, that this revelation of you and these verses contains something that is intended to deepen our understanding of you and enrich our relationship with you. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open it up to us and let us glory once again, Lord, in the salvation that you have provided to us and, Lord, the Savior that you have given us in order to allow us to be saved as we are. We thank you for Jesus this morning, and we thank you, Lord, for your love for us, your concern for us, Lord, your faithfulness to us, unfailing. We give you praise for it, Lord, today. Ask that you would take these verses off of the printed page And take and give them, Lord, a living place in our heart and in our relationship with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The writer of the book of Hebrews has just finished warning his readers and also warning us against the sin of apostasy, against departing from faith in Christ alone for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. And he warns against apostatizing or departing or leaving that salvation for the simple reason that there is no other source of salvation except the salvation that is found in Christ alone. Now that sometimes sounds... Uh, Arrogant to people that don't know the Lord yet, it won't always, they'll come to know the Lord and glory in it, but it seems as if God is being exclusive. Jesus declared of himself and the salvation that he offers the world, he said, I am the singular, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's the fact of the matter related to salvation from the mouth of the Savior Himself. And sometimes people look at that and they say that's too exclusive, that's too narrow. They have a complaint with all of that. I never complain about the narrowness or the exclusiveness of salvation, number one, and the fact that it doesn't exclude anyone. It is a narrow way to be saved. It is one way to be saved. But no one is excluded from being saved. I always look at it because I know who and what I am. And I know who and what I was before I came to know the Lord. And I know who and what I am to this day. And I never have a beef at the size of the scope or narrow or broad or whatever related to salvation. I am so thankful every single day... That God found a way to provide a salvation at all for people like me. I'm thrilled that He did that. So Jesus declared of the salvation, of salvation period that is only found in Him. There was a point in Jesus' ministry, it's recorded in John chapter 6, when Jesus had people following Him by the thousands. And part of the crowd was, had developed around him by virtue of the fact that he had fed large numbers of people with five loaves and two fish, and people began to get the idea that this guy is a meal ticket. You just follow him around, and then he's going to feed you every time you're hungry. And so Jesus knew that there's a huge number of people that appear to be following him all for the same reason for him, for his truth and, and his ministry. But he knew the motives were a little more complicated than that, and not all the motives were pure. So he turned to them, and he began to speak to them about the price that they would pay, the sacrifice that they would need to make in order to follow him and be his disciple, how that they would need to take and eat of his body and drink of his blood. In other words, partake of his life, his hardship, the same life that he partook of, and, and to follow him through any, in all difficulty. As Jesus would say elsewhere, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, And follow after me. It's not the easiest life in the world. The Christian life is not the easiest life in the world. It is the best life in the world. But it's not the easiest life in the world. And as Jesus began to declare this to that great multitude, they began to melt away in sufficient numbers that it was apparent that what Jesus was saying was really testing the motives of many of these listeners, and many of them were abandoning him right on the spot. Jesus didn't, you know, start to say, oh, please don't leave or start to change his message or anything that he had said or apologize for what he had said. He didn't do any of that. He turned to the disciples who were standing right next to him, and he said, will you leave me also? And Peter spoke for all of the disciples, and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. To leave you would be to leave everlasting life because it's not found in any other Savior or in any other salvation. It's only found in you. And throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer follows a pattern of delivering a very strong exhortation or warning to his readers. And some of the strongest warnings in the Bible are found in the book of Hebrews. I mean, some of them you just look at and you go, wow! I mean, that is is scathing. That is a very hard, strong, unmistakable warning. And the writer of the book of Hebrews was not afraid to do that. It was important that he did that. But his pattern was to deliver a warning like that and then follow it immediately with an encouragement, with a word of comfort. So they would not misunderstand the warning, but so that he could uh, speak a word of comfort or encouragement to them. And so that's exactly what he is doing here in this passage. Having warned them, as we saw last week, against apostasy in really no uncertain terms, he then now seeks to encourage them in the security of the salvation that's found in Christ. And there is no um, conflict between those things. There is no conflict between a strong warning against apostasy and the possibility of apostasy and then to follow it immediately with just as strong a word concerning the security of the salvation that has been provided for us by Christ and that we possess as Christians. And so he's going to encourage them. And he's also going to give them some very, very practical instruction on how to handle whatever voices were encouraging them to abandon their faith in Christ. And in their case, to go after a different salvation related to the religion of their their fathers, which was a misguided way that the law and the prophets had been interpreted by their religious leaders, to return to legalism, to return to works or human effort as a means of salvation rather than faith in Christ. Somebody had their ear. Somebody was speaking to them, some mother, some father, some children, some uncle. Someone had their ear and was telling them, because sometimes it's hard for people that love us to watch us suffer in a circumstance, especially persecution for being a Christian. They want to make everything all better for us, and so they'll come in and say, abandon that, come back to what you used to believe. You never had to go through the problems you went through when you did that. And so jettison that, get rid of that, abandon it, and come back to where things were safer and a little bit uh, quieter for you. So people were telling them these things, and it was a temptation. And sometimes we don't even need another person to tell us. Sometimes you can have voices in your own head. Where here you are, you're going along, and things get really, really hard to stay faithful to the Lord, uncompromising to His Word in the environment of the world or the neighborhood or the workplace or the school or the whatever we find ourselves in all over the world. Sometimes there's something within us can say, Listen, you need to get out of this and go back to whatever and abandon your faith in Christ and your walk with the Lord and trusting in that salvation, and go to some other salvation where there's not so much heat in the kitchen. The fact of the matter is, is every single one of us as Christians, we've got two natures in us. We've got a new nature that was birthed when the Holy Spirit came into our lives as Christians. The new nature, the new man, the new man loves to walk with God, loves even the persecution and the difficulty, because... He knows that there's the the refining of godly character that's produced there, all of these. But there's also the old man that we won't be rid of until we're in heaven, the old nature that is totally into self-preservation. Doesn't like hardship, doesn't like saying no to itself, doesn't like difficulty or pain any more than it did before we became Christians. And that voice inside of our own head can sometimes tell us to abandon Christ. And we notice in verses 12 through 15, the practical instruction that he gives to those that were hearing this voice from whatever source it might be, he said, imitate those, verse 12, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, stop listening to all of these other voices trying to pull you away from your salvation in Christ and and put your eyes on other Christians who are in just as great a difficulty as you are in or in even greater difficulty that you are in, and yet they are committed to living and finishing their Christian life dominated by faith and by perseverance. I hope all of us have our eyes on one, two, three, four, five people like that in our Christian life. They're all over the place. There are people in my life, I could name them. They would be names in the larger body of Christ. And I look at their faith and their perseverance, and it's a tremendous encouragement to me. There are others within this body. They don't know it. I don't tell them. I don't want to add any kind of complications to the relationship. But they have no idea that as I watch them continue to walk with the Lord through sometimes unbelievably difficult circumstances, that they are an encouragement to my faith and my perseverance in my own relationship with the Lord. And so all of us need those kind of people in our lives that we're either watching or have them as a relationship in our life. And the writer is saying there are plenty of those kinds of people in the body of Christ Get your eyes on them and keep your eyes on them. And then he proceeded to give them a great example of the kind of person we ought to put our focus on as an encouragement to our faith and our perseverance. And he gave them the example of Abraham, verses uh, 13 through 15. You notice in verse 14, God gave Abraham a promise. And the writer is quoting from... Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, where the Lord reaffirmed His promise to Abraham from Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. And in that Genesis chapter 12 passage, God had called upon Abraham to leave his country of Haran and to travel to a land that he would show him, the land of Israel, where God would make a great nation of him, and that all of the families of the world would be blessed in him. In order to for this promise to come to pass, before Abraham could become the father of a great nation, he first needed to become the father of a family. He needed to become the father of a son. And at the time the promise was given to Abraham, Abraham was childless. And so that was the promise. A childless man would give birth to a son, that through that son, a great nation or great people would be brought into existence, the Jewish people, and that ultimately through the lineage of Abraham, a Messiah or a Savior would be born into the world who would be a blessing not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, all of the families or all of the nations of the world. And that promise, in part, was fulfilled 25 years after it was given to Abraham. 25 years after that promise was given, against literally all human odds, God fulfilled the promise with the birth of Isaac to Abraham and to Sarah. Abraham was 75 years old when he had the promise given to him. He's like, okay, God, if you're going to give me a child, time's ticking away on things. I'm not in my 20s or 30s anymore. And so he's he's 75 when the promise is given to him. He's 100 years old when the child is actually born. His wife, Sarah, was 90 years old when Isaac was born. She had been barren, sterile, childless all of her life and now she gives birth to a child at the age of 90 after the whole, you know, change of life and the whole kind of, uh, of deal that would characterize uh, a life in, in that age. And yet uh, the child was born as God had promised. Now, 25 years is a long time to wait for a promise to be fulfilled, even when that promise is, has come from God and yet it happened just as God said it would and all Abraham had to do in order to obtain the promise was just two things first to have faith have confidence that what God had promised to do he would do and then second to be patient to patiently wait until God fulfilled The promise. And the point that the writer is making to his readers and to us is that what is needed in that period of time between when God gives us a promise, like everlasting life, or that we're going to go to heaven, that when God gives us a promise at a particular point, in our lives, the time between when the promise is given and the fulfillment of that promise, what's needed in our lives as well is faith, to have confidence in the promise that God has made, and then patient, to just patiently persevere. And so how does a promise become fulfillment? By patiently enduring until it happens. And if we do, he is saying, if we do the same two things in our pilgrimage toward heaven, we trust God, patiently wait on Him, stick with Him, we will find ourselves one day in heaven just as God promised. And it's as simple as that. So you take a deep breath, exhale, and you relax. And all we need to do to one day end up in the glory of heaven is to just keep trusting in the Lord and just keep on keeping on in our relationship with Him as the old saying uh, goes. Now, Abraham never saw the full fulfillment of God's promise to him in his lifetime. He saw the birth of Isaac. But he never saw Isaac become a great nation. And he never saw the Messiah be born of his seed. But he thought, God gave me a son, he'll take care of the rest, and God did. And for us, all we need to know is that God gave us his son, and he'll take care of the rest. He'll make sure that we get into heaven. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is Romans chapter 8, verse 32, where Paul writes, and he said, he who did not spare his own son, think about that, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? But our our not getting to heaven, our getting there into heaven, is absolutely not in question. Somebody says, why? And he tells us in verses 13, 17, and 18, because the salvation that's found in Christ is as sure as the Word of God. And there's nothing sure in all of the world than U.S. Treasury bonds and the Word of God, (laughs) than the solvency of the United States federal government and the Word of God, than the euro... And the Word of God. Now, you can't find a sureness anywhere in this world. There's nothing more sure in this world than the Word of God, and our salvation is based upon the promises and the Word of God. In verse 13, when God made His promise to Abraham, because He could swear by no one greater, we're told, He swore by Himself. In Genesis chapter 22, when God reaffirmed his promise to Abraham, he prefaced it by saying, By myself I have sworn. In other words, when he makes this promise to Abraham, he gives Abraham his word, but then he also puts himself under oath, so to speak. And the point is that if God's bare word is absolutely and unfailingly sure, How much more when he adds an oath to perform that word to the promise was completely sure. Now, further the writer tells us in verse sixteen that when men swear uh, to the truth that they always swear by something or someone who is greater than themselves. So you go into a court of law or you deal with somebody else and somebody will say, I swear on the Bible. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear by all that is high and holy. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. And so these, things are, these references are made, and I'm swearing by someone or something that is greater than myself. And when a person does that, it ends any dispute related to the truth. I have a twin brother I grew up with, and um, sometimes we'd make one another swear over issues. Some turn up missing. I said, Gabe, did you eat my cookie? I didn't eat your cookie. Do you swear on a stack of Bibles that you did not take my cookie? I swear on a stack of Bibles... I did not take your cookie. And that was the end of the dispute. That's how disputes ended. And the point that he's making here is that if God, if God has said something and then further sworn an oath to the fact that it's true, then that should end any dispute about the subject. And what's the subject he's talking about in the passage? Our salvation. My salvation, your salvation that's found in Christ as heirs of the greater promise God was giving to Abraham, that he would not only bless the world with a physical nation or people known as the Jews, but that a great spiritual kingdom would be birthed out of his loins, as well with the birth of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus, and speaking of us as the body of Christ. In other words, the promise of salvation in Christ is sure, it's immutable, it's unchangeable, because God, who cannot lie, has promised it. And, of course, this would have been and is a tremendous encouragement to us related to our salvation and related to our hope of heaven. And so we believe God's promise concerning salvation, that we are going to inherit that promise as we just simply remain patient and watch everything unfold. Now, the writer wants us to know that our salvation, as I said, is sure, as sure as God's word, and that there's nothing sure than God's word in all of the world God wants us to be absolutely assured that what he has promised us is going to come to pass. And it's interesting to realize that his very integrity, God's reputation is bound up in my salvation. If he fails to take me as a believer in Jesus Christ from where I stand here this morning behind this pulpit, ultimately to standing on that glassy sea in heaven, then something far worse will have happened in all of creation than me missing heaven. God will have been proven a liar. His reputation will have been sullied. Well, the Bible says he cannot lie. And his reputation is perfect because he is perfect. So the idea is that one day we will end up in heaven because he will be faithful to his word. Now finally I want you to notice in the latter part of verse 18 all the way through into verse 20 that the writer then gives us three wonderful illustrations to emphasize the security or the sureness of our salvation found in Christ. In verse 18, he uses the imagery from the Old Testament of what were known as the cities of refuge. As Christians, he tells us, we have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, that is, the hope of salvation. In the law of Moses, God set up a um, six cities that were known as uh, cities of refuge. Three three of them were located on the west side of the the Jordan River in Israel proper. Three of them were located on the east side of Jordan where uh, two and a half of the the tribes had settled there. And the idea behind the city of refuge was if a person accidentally killed another person, let's say you were out uh, cutting wood, getting ready for winter with your neighbor, And uh, the head flies off of the axe, and how unfortunate could things be, but it lands right in his forehead. And he dies on the spot. Well, one of the problems with that, because of that culture, they didn't have police force like we have, where in every city, in every county, and all, you've got these police forces for law enforcement. So when a person would commit a crime against another family... There was a, a person who was called the Avenger of Blood or the Kinsman Redeemer. The oldest male member of that family was responsible to avenge the family member that had been sinned against or a crime had been committed against. They were to avenge that on the person that had committed the crime. And it was a, it was, a very fabulous, I don't have time to develop it right now, but a very, very fabulous um, way of doing things. Uh, under the circumstances at the time but when a person accidentally killed somebody they bef- the avenger of blood would have immediately tried to hunt them down and kill them but he's innocent but he might kill him before he could get the facts out and explain the whole thing so he could run to one of these cities enter into the city the priest would then verify the facts surrounding the circumstances And if it was indeed accidental, it was manslaughter, then that person who had accidentally killed his friend or another person could stay within the boundaries of that city, and as long as they lived within the boundaries of that city, the avenger of blood could never uh, touch them. And the application to us here of the writer is that in fleeing to Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our refuge... We are perfectly safe. As long as we remain in Him, we don't leave Him for another uh, salvation, then no avenger in any way can touch us. No one can snatch us out of God's hands. And so he's emphasizing the fact that our salvation is a safe salvation. He declares further in verse 19 that our hope, In the salvation that's found in Jesus is an anchor to the soul. So what a physical anchor does for a ship, our hope or our confidence of everlasting life does for our soul. The purpose of a physical anchor related to a ship is to keep that ship safe, steadfast, immovable, no matter how great the storm might be, it also keeps a ship from moving uh, based upon things that sometimes we can't see, but they are moving around us like wind or sea currents. The anchor stabilizes that ship. It keeps it safe and steadfast and immovable. And he's declaring to us that in the same way our hope or our confidence of everlasting life found in Christ keeps us safe and steadfast and immovable in uh, every realm in life, the physical realm and the spiritual realm and the mental realm and the emotional realm. No matter what form of trial comes against us, this anchor keeps a hold on us no matter how bad the storm might be mentally or emotionally or spiritually or physically. And he tells us that our hope of everlasting life is sure. Literally, that word sure means it cannot slip. That our anchor, our salvation, cannot slip or fail us in any circumstance or storm of life. He tells us that the hope of salvation, of everlasting life that we have, is steadfast. And that means literally it can't break. It will never collapse under the weight of any circumstance that we face in life. It will never fail us at any point in life. Even if it comes to the point where we give up our life for the sake of Christ. And it's only the salvation that's found in Jesus that is both sure and steadfast. And he tells us why. Because this anchor enters the presence behind the veil. And the veil speaks. All of this is Old Testament imagery. But in the temple, the ancient tabernacle, and then later the temple, in that building there was a holy place. And then... There was a great curtain that separated the holy place from another room that was called the Holy of Holies. And so it's talking about that great curtain. You picture it in your mind, and that anchor goes right from around your ankle or around your heart or your mind, and it goes all the way through that veil and into the Holy of Holies. Just as surely as we have a rope that's tied around our ankle that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. People say, how do I know that I'm a descendant of Adam and Eve? Because you die. and Adam all die. Death in the human condition testifies to the veracity of the ancient account of the creation and fall of man in the Garden of Eden. But that's not the only thing that has a hold on our life. On the other ankle or the other part of us, there's this great rope that goes through and is attached to an anchor that is anchored in the Holy of Holies. And that Holy of Holies, on the other side of that great veil, it represented the very presence of God. And the temple was a model of heaven, and so the Holy of Holies represented the very throne of God. And so our salvation reaches all the way into heaven and is anchored to or secured to something that is absolutely immovable, unshakable, unchanging, unaffected by anything in this world because it is anchored to the very throne of God itself. Now, how secure is that? It can't be any more secure than it is. Ours is a secure salvation. And then finally he tells us in verse 20 that our salvation is sure because it enjoys Jesus as a forerunner. Jesus is a forerunner. He has gone into heaven before us. And he's telling us that the fact that Jesus is in heaven right now is the guarantee that we will follow him there. Jesus said in John chapter 14, Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, and he has, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And under that old covenant of the law of Moses... Only one man, the high priest, could enter into that holy of holies on only one single day out of the year. And he had to go into that room alone. He couldn't bring a cousin. He couldn't bring his mom. He couldn't bring Opie or Goober or Aunt B or Andy or anyone else. He is the only one that could pass through that veil. But the writer is telling us Jesus has made a way for us to follow him, not just into the model of heaven, into the holy of holies, but a way for us to follow him into heaven itself. And Jesus' presence in heaven is the guarantee that of our presence there one day as well. Our salvation is sure. As surely as Jesus is in heaven right now, that's how sure our salvation found in Him ends with us in heaven as well. I never doubt my salvation. I'm not arrogant about it. I don't say that out of pride. I just don't. Because the salvation that God has provided to us is a sure and a steadfast salvation. God doesn't want a single Christian to doubt our salvation at all, to waste even a moment's time doubting our salvation. It's a sure salvation. We can rest in it. We're to enjoy it. We're to respond to it by giving the Lord praise and thanksgiving for it. And the point that he's making is that in light of the greatness of this salvation, who, in their right mind, would walk away from it or apostatize from it? The point that he's making here is that the one thing a person must not do is to leave that salvation, the salvation found in Christ alone for any other salvation, again, for the simple reason that there is No other salvation. As Peter said, Lord, where would we go? For you have the words of everlasting life. And so we come once again to this beautiful balance that the Holy Spirit gives into our lives and is needed for our lives. The writer is saying, I did not write Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 12 to have a single person who is trusting in Christ for their salvation to doubt their salvation. So he lays it on layer after layer after layer to speak to us of the security of our salvation. And yet not in the slightest bit, to weaken his warning against ever leaving that salvation or apostatizing from it. I got a letter this week from a pastor, and there are more than one, so you're not going to be able to guess who it is necessarily, but more than one retired pastor in the fellowship that attends here. makes a nervous wreck out of me, I, but... I know they're gracious men. But he wrote me an email, as he some, sometimes does. And I'm not going to get the wording just exactly right. But he wrote a note saying that he appreciated the teaching on apostasy in the, in the passage in Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 12. And he stated that he, uh, that, that was a view that he, he came to have uh, later in his ministry as well. And then he he made a statement concerning uh, apostasy and the apostate, and he said it something like this. He said, he said, thankfully, I have found that to be a very small group of people, or a very small situation. And I thought that's very very well put. I, in all of the years that I have walked with the Lord i I bet i couldn't even list on one hand fill five names where i'd look and say that person is definitely an apostate it 's a rare circumstance, but even if it 's just one in a million that or a person is being tempted to take that step, they still need that warning, and these Jewish believers that the writer is writing to, they are are seriously being tempted. And so he does not say that they had committed apostasy or that they would or that they had lost their salvation in any way. He was warning them not to do what some were tempting them to do. And so the importance for us to have that kind of maturity as Christians to say, oh, no, don't tell me it's all got to be in its own little box and everything, and this has got to fit right here and all, and there can't be any mystery with God, and and don't confuse me with the facts, even if they're biblical. God doesn't want a single one of us as Christians to doubt our salvation and doubt the fact that because of our faith in Christ, we will stand in heaven with our Savior one day and yet at the same time to issue that warning of never leaving this salvation because this is the only salvation and the only hope of salvation in the world. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the balance of it. We thank you for how it complements itself. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that it reveals and the needed thing that it does in each one of our lives. And, Lord, we acknowledge that we need the assurance. But, Lord... We need the warning, too, and some more than others, Lord. Thank you for the beauty of these passages that we've been studying in your book of Hebrews. And we just thank you, Lord, today for your love for us. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you that he was willing to do that. Thank you, Lord, for the anchor that is attached to our life that leads all the way to your throne room. Thank you, Lord, for the assurance that that gives to us. Thank you for looking at us as frail as we are, as imperfect as we are, and providing us with a Savior and a salvation that perfectly matches our needs, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the price that you paid to do it. We give you thanks and honor and glory as we've sung even this morning, Lord, for the salvation that is found in Christ and for making it a free gift to us today. Thank you, Lord, for how good you've been to us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you in his name, if you stand here the